Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, so glad that you could join me again today. So my episode is again one of the Autism Spectrum Disorders series, and I am delighted to bring a really exceptional panel for you to listen to today. But before we do that, I need to give you the information about CME. So this episode is one of a three-part series of podcasts on Autism Spectrum Disorders. The activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of Michigan State University and the Michigan Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Michigan State University is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Michigan State University designates this internet enduring material activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All planners, reviewers, and faculty presenters have nothing to disclose. Cognoa is a commercial organization and has provided non-restricted educational grants to support this CME activity. Participants will be able to claim CME by reading the activity instructions for participants and by using the CME claim link. Both will be listed in the show notes. The target audience is physicians, physician assistants, and nurses in the specialty area of pediatrics. The learning objectives for today's podcast include objective number one, name at least three different treatment interventions for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. Objective number two, recognize the importance of early referral and intervention for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. And number three, Assess practice process for coordination of services for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the panel. Hey, listeners, I am so excited today to bring you a really dynamic interview with a group of experts who honestly have so much to say about their individual practices that each could have their own podcast. And hey, that might be something coming up. So, my first speaker is Dr. Stephanie Peterson, and Dr. Peterson is an Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Western Michigan University, WMU. She earned her doctorate in special education at the University of Iowa in 1994. She is also Professor of Psychology and the previous Chair of the Department of Psychology at WMU. Previously, she taught at Gonzaga University, Utah State University, the Ohio State University, and Idaho State University. She served two three-year terms on the Board of Directors for the Behavior Analyst Certification Board and was appointed by the Governor of Michigan to the Michigan Board of Behavior Analysts, Michigan's Licensing Board for Behavior Analysts. She served as Board President for two years. 
Dr. Cheryl Rosen is a speech-language pathologist, professor, and certified autism specialist with 25 years of experience in the field. She has presented around the world and has been published in research journals on best practices in assessment and intervention for individuals with autism spectrum disorders. She is the owner and director of Palm Beach Speech Language Specialists in South Florida and the founder and consulting director of the St. Kitts Spectrum Services Center in St. Kitts, the first autism clinic in the Caribbean. Dr. Rosen was the recipient of the 2017 Luis M. DiCarlo Award for Clinical Achievement from the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Dr. Rick Solomon is a developmental and behavioral pediatrician with over 25 years experience diagnosing and providing intervention for children with autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Solomon is a nationally recognized expert in the field of autism science and intervention. He is in private practice at the Ann Arbor Center for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and is the founder of The Play Project, an evidence-based parent-implemented autism-intensive early intervention model that uses a developmental, relationship-based, and playful approach. And finally, Kirsten Brown. Kirsten is a licensed occupational therapist with over 25 years' experience working with children and families. She is the owner of First Achievements PLLC in Hebron, Kentucky, and provides home-based early intervention and office-based OT services. She has presented workshops for early intervention providers, therapists, and parents on the topic of addressing the social, emotional, sensory, and behavioral challenges in early intervention. Kirsten co-authored the Play Project Teleplay Manual with Dr. Rick Solomon. She was the 2018 recipient of the Mitch Catcher Leadership Award for the Play Project and a recipient of the 2018 Kentucky Governor's Award for her work in autism spectrum disorders. Please join me in welcoming this outstanding group of individuals. Good morning, and thank you guys so much for joining me, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here, and I think this segment is really pertinent to our previous podcast with Dr. Hyman, where she talked a whole lot about sort of the pediatric perspective and what we see, and I really want to hear from all of you about kind of that treatment piece and how that meshes together. So we're going to just dive right in because I could do an hour with each of you, but we're going to just try and get bits and pieces and give listeners just a flavor for some of the things you do. So Cheryl, I'm going to start with you and you're our speech professional. And you shared with me that speech professionals sometimes are the first ones to raise the concern. Oftentimes the pediatrician may say, you know, that your speech is kind of delayed I might be thinking in my head the child has autism, but I haven't said it. I send them to you, and you may be the first person to kind of start to raise that autism diagnosis. And can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like, and what are some of those nonverbal things that you're seeing in that early kind of that early referral? Sure. Yeah, I'm so glad that you bring this up because this is something that happens on a daily basis in my practice is that, you know, the pediatrician will refer for communication. Basically, the child is not developing speech and language or doesn't have those first words, isn't babbling a lot. um, And so they refer for speech. However, as you know, the pediatrician, I feel that sometimes 
the red flags of autism are overlooked. And so the parent has no idea that that could be something that's potentially going to be diagnosed in the future. So they're blindsided when I introduce that because, you know, ethically and professionally, it's very important for us to be able to say to the parent, you know, there's something more going on than just speech and language. And so I really want to emphasize that, you know, and encourage pediatricians not to look away. You know, when you see something that doesn't seem quite right, then, you know, try to administer either, which I know most pediatricians do, some assessments or screeners to look deeper into, is this are these possibly red flags of autism? And have that conversation with parents. Um, and it may be that they're not exactly sure what red flags you know they should be looking at. And that's what I want to to provide is just a few of those really critical red flags that you would see or that maybe the parent would discuss with you and sort of probe for those questions. Because sometimes you might not see them in a well visit. You know, you're talking to the parent, you're thinking about all the very critical medical things, but maybe not looking at that social communication, those very early red flags that are so important for the future development of the child. And so that's the cornerstone of everything else. Like if we're not seeing that social emotional response, and I'll give you an example of what some of those look like, then that's a huge red flag for autism because we want to see that as the foundation for everything else. So things like when your child doesn't look directly at you, you know, that can be a red flag. Or when they're really just more interested in objects than people, right? Early development, children are very social. They're showing, they're looking, they're pointing. They're using all those very early social communicative skills that help us to understand that they are, using their social communication, which is going to help them develop their speech and language in the future. And so those critical signs, not that lack of joint attention, which is that three-point gaze of looking at the object or the activity and looking back at the person, those are all the core deficits of autism. If you don't have those social communication pieces, that's a huge red flag. And for us as speech-language pathologists, we work on those things because, as I said, they're foundational for everything else. If we're not sharing attention or looking at somebody or having that back-and-forth reciprocity, which is part of communication, then we know there's something more going on than just a speech and language disorder. So it's interesting what you're saying and that these are things that are happening way before we do the MCHAT at 18 months. And what you're saying is absolutely true. And I've been in that seat going, ah, God, something doesn't seem right. So Rick, I want to get to you. So you're a developmental behavioral pediatrician, but that means also you are a pediatrician and you know that kind of that primary care seat too. But so what do you think about this? You know, how do we raise the issue? I think we're afraid to say, I'm concerned there may be some red flags that could suggest autism. I mean, we sort of dance around it. I mean, what do you think about that? I, I wanted just to add a little bit to what Cheryl was saying in, in kind of the sequence of this process. So when I was uh, you know, training residents, one of the things that I told them as the first screening tool is delay in language. So 
if you see a delay in language in very young children, your one of your first thoughts should be, could this be autism? Then those other red flags. So, so the first red flag is a delay in language and a delay in communication. Then those other red flags you see that Cheryl listed become then your branching step. And by the way, does your child, you know, play by themselves for long periods of time and and uh, not turn to their name uh, or share or share an object of interest with you? I mean, those types of little screening questions that can follow the discovery of language delay, I think, then lead you into the domain uh, of autism. And then the question is, okay, well, now the autism red flag popped up in my mind. What do I do? You know, and this is a very delicate matter for a pediatrician. Very delicate. Uh, you know, you're you could be shocking the families on the one hand. You could also be confirming what the families are, are thinking. And I think that pediatricians have to really make a judgment about whether the family is ready to hear the A word. I think a lot of older pediatricians always thought of autism as, you know, something you couldn't treat. I think now it's changing. And so there is almost a ethical obligation to raise the question about autism and to frame it in a way of a, in, in a in a form of uncertainty. I'm not sure. I'm worried. I feel like I have to tell you um, that I'm concerned about and use that type of phraseology and say, I think we need to pursue this further. And I hope I'm not shocking you by raising the question about autism, but I feel like I have to tell you because there's so much that can be done for these children if we diagnose them early. And then you wait, and then you pause, and then you see. You know, I I say uh, usually there's four types of parents when I make the diagnosis. Those who are shocked. It's actually not that common. Those who actually suspected something and were waiting for their pediatrician to say something. And and I have a lot of parents who said, my pediatrician never told me, you know, never, never said anything. And then the third group are those who are in denial. No, that, that can't be the case. That can't be the case. And then the fourth group is usually those people who go, okay, you know, I'll do whatever I can for my child. So which one's the most common? I actually, at least in my practice, parents aren't stupid. They know uh, something's wrong. And, and if, you re- if you truly suspect that it could be an autism spectrum and you raise that, a lot of them are going to go, oh, I'm glad you said that because I've been worried. I've been, re- you know, these days with the Internet, I mean, I'm reading about it. My, you know, my, my mother said something about it and I didn't want to believe it. But now, you know, and, and so a lot of times it's a relief. And actually, that's, I think that's the more common. And you're giving space for them to talk about it. And I think there was something that you said to me prior to us recording was, and I love this phrase, you said, how do you feel about what I'm saying? And then waiting. And I love that. That is so, I mean, it's just such a nice approach. Like, And I did a course, um, the Cleveland Clinic has all these courses to improve communication. And one was how to deliver bad news. And what they recommended is you say what the bad news is. I think you have a brain tumor based on what I see on your CAT scan. And then you stop and you let them react. And people don't want us dancing around in, well, there might be something, but I'm not sure. You know, they want us to say, 
I'm concerned about X and how, you know, tell me what you think about that. I think it depends on, I agree with the importance of pausing and, and asking families. I, I think the, the, in this case, a lot of times pediatricians might not know. I think they, they have a certain degree of uncertainty that, that they will then refer the child for further evaluation. They can say that, you know, but raising the question even is upsetting, potentially upsetting. And, and, but if you say, you know, how do you feel about what I'm saying? And the parents go, I'm actually relieved doctor, you know, or, oh, you know, that, that, you know, that sounds really serious, you know? So you have to be prepared. And that that's one of the big issues, I think, for pediatricians who are in a hurry. Their their schedules are very, this really opens up a Pandora's box, you know, for. for right. And I think this tags onto what Dr. Hyman was saying about why it's so important for pediatricians to have a better understanding. And Cheryl, this kind of tags onto what you were saying earlier. What do you, what do you think about what Dr. Solomon had to say? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I feel that most of the parents that even when they come to me and we do approach the subject that they are already having the sense inside and they, they do go online and they do some kind, you know, of screening themselves. And so that is when I do, you know, bring up that subject and they haven't heard it from their pediatrician, then they question it a little bit more. And that's why I just feel that it is important for the pediatricians to be transparent about the child's development, at least about the red flags present. You know, because silence is really the voice of conspiracy. Like secrecy doesn't help. It's like Ooh, that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, it just doesn't help anything. It's like visibility leads to good outcomes, right? Because then they're empowered. And if we talk about this, you know, openly with parents, I just feel like it then opens the door to more access to care. It, it's just something that I really strongly believe in. And, you know, it really, it should start at that level because they're the ones that are seeing the children before they get to us. They're the ones that are really following, you know, the children's development. So they don't have to necessarily say it's autism, but they definitely should talk about red flags and what those red flags could, you know, indicate other further developmental difficulties. Sure. And I think we're very familiar with differential diagnoses, meaning, you know, when we see delays in language, it can be many things. One of the things can be autism. And that is so important because there's, like you were saying, Rick, there's so many things we can do. And that brings me to you, Kirsten, because you're, as an OT, you're in the early intervention world. And I think the big takeaway for listeners should be early intervention is critically important. So can you talk a little bit about that early intervention piece? Yeah. So just, it is important to refer them in early intervention. So I do hear a lot of parents say to me, my pediatrician wanted to wait. They wanted to wait, you know, and they said, oh, he'll start talking. Let's wait till age two. And I would encourage pediatricians not to wait. So as soon as a parent expresses concern, and it is usually a delay in language that they're concerned about, but there's also other things. You know, my child's not responding to their name. My child prefers to play by themselves most of the day. My child, you know, is not engaging with his brother and and his brother's asking, when is he going to love us? You know, so... When when pediatricians begin to hear those things, I think they need to refer the child 
at the very least to the early intervention program to get more eyes on the child's development. Because what happens in early intervention is that we then have the opportunity to see the child in their natural environment. So they're not in an office setting where the doctor's feeling rushed with time. Now we get to go to the home and we get to do a full developmental assessment in the child's natural environment. And and that is shared with the pediatrician. So I think it's really valuable information for the pediatrician. So I my encouragement would be is don't wait when the parent begins to express concerns or you begin to have concerns. Just go ahead and refer them on to early intervention. The sooner the better. I mean, I worked with a little boy who was 13 months old and was clearly showing the signs of autism at 13 months old. And even though he was mom's first child, she was worried. You know, she she knew enough, even though he was her first child, that something was not right. Because when she would try to engage with him, he would actively avoid engagement with her. So, you know, it was way beyond just a, a speech delay. So that would be, you know, and one of the key principles of early intervention is that infants and toddlers learn best through everyday experiences and interactions with family members and in familiar contexts. And so the early intervention providers then um, will teach parents how to further develop their child's ability to participate in daily interactions and daily occupations. And, and, and through that time, you know, you know, I think it's hard. For, I agree. It's hard for a pediatrician in one office visit to be certain and say your child has autism. So the early intervention providers have the luxury of time and seeing the child every week and starting to notice patterns that, think, that yeah, confirm I, those red flags. And I think that partnership is so important. I mean, I love early on for lots of reasons. One of early intervention is that it's free, right? That assessment is free. Those services are free and families can self-refer. It doesn't require a physician to refer. One thing I do think that is critical, and we may talk about a little bit later, is that connect back to the pediatrician. And I do wish that process was a little tighter because sometimes we don't always have, you know, that connect. I mean, ideally, I'd love a phone call from somebody that says, hey, this is what we're seeing in the home. So sometimes that information, you know, doesn't always close the loop, if you will, to really kind of solidify that. But I love what you're saying about in their own environment. And and I think that's really, really important. And I think that brings me to Dr. Peterson, who it works in the ABA field. And, and again, that's that kind of hands-on. And Dr. Solomon's going to talk a little bit about another model in just a minute. But I wanted to give Dr. Peterson an opportunity to sort of springboard on what's been said already. Sure. And I appreciate the conversation so far. Uh, like everyone else, we're a big fan of early intervention and, and believe that the sooner we can get started on some intervention strategies, the better outcomes we are likely to have. And that and the research evidence supports that. So ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis, and that has become a term that refers to a specific type of intervention for children with autism. But it's important to understand that Applied Behavior Analysis is actually a term that reflects a science of behavior. And it's a science that takes the basic principles of behavior that 
were originally um, developed and sort of uh, elaborated on by B.F. Skinner back in the 50s and 60s and applies those basic principles to human behavior to help solve you know, socially relevant problems. And in the 80s, Ivar Lovas was one of the first people who published some data showing that these principles could be applied to help individuals who have autism improve some of their skills. And since then, there's been a fairly robust set of literature that supports and furthers that initial research. So what a behavior analytic approach to treatment for autism involves is really thinking about how the child interacts with the environment and changes we can make in the environment to help improve language skills, pre-academic skills, academic skills, social skills, and, and even in some case, behavioral excesses like problem behavior. It's not uncommon for children with autism to display some problem behaviors in large part because they have these communication deficits that you know, if I can't communicate my wants and needs, children often find another way to communicate those. So if I can't use my words, um, I'll use other behaviors in my repertoire to communicate what I want and need. So typically, a, a behavioral intervention will involve a, a therapist working with a child to arrange the environment so there are multiple opportunities to practice a skill. They will work in natural environments such as the child's home, or sometimes they work in clinical environments. And a lot of times that just depends on the preference of the family and what they desire. Sometimes one of the issues that comes up with trying to work in natural environments is that the opportunities to practice certain skills don't occur that often. Maybe once or twice a day, for example, you have the opportunity to request juice, uh, you know, like breakfast and lunch. So we might build in more opportunities to practice those skills. The therapist might provide some initial prompts to help the child learn the specific skill. And then when once they display the desired target behavior, such as requesting the juice, some sort of uh, reinforcement procedure is used to reinforce that skill. So in the example I'm using right there, when they request the juice, they get a little drink of juice, uh, which would be the reinforcer for actually making the request. Like I said, the intervention might be done in home or clinic. It might be done in a sort of tightly construed teaching context, or it might be in a more naturalistic context. It really depends on the skill that the uh, where the child is at and the learning process on that skill, and largely the preference of the family. Or if the child is old enough, or the individual is old enough, uh, we may actually talk to the individual about what what it is they want to work on and how they want to approach that. So there's a lot of conversation involved with the family about how this is going to work, uh, what the goals are for the skills they want to develop, uh, what the environments are that they want to see those skills be displayed in, home, school, admire, uh, out on the playground, so that we can work on skills in those relevant contexts or make sure they're transferring from one context to to the other. Thank you. It sounds to me like there's just so many kind of realms that that treatment intervention um, can help. And I know, Rick, you're involved in another program that is more of a parent-implemented model. And that, in addition to building these skills, 
is also focused on the parents and the relationship between the parent and child. So it sounds like a lot of these are sort of complementary. Can you talk a little bit about that model? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, you know, kind of piggyback, uh, you know, onto what Stephanie was saying about the importance, well, what all of us are saying. Uh, I think pediatricians need to hear two things. One is that the days of wait and see are over. We should not be putting off the diagnosis because, as Stephanie was saying, there's really wonderful evidence now that when you do intensive early intervention, it changes the life course of the children. And in my experience of 25 years now following children over their whole lifetime, I can vouch personally, but I think the evidence is also very strong, that when you do intensive early intervention, it it really matters. And and so I just wanted to take a minute to define what that means. Intensive early intervention has five components. Number one, it should start as early as possible. And pediatricians should know that you can make the diagnosis as early as 14 months pretty reliably. Now they're screening at 18 months, so you can definitely make the diagnosis by 18 months. And so there was a you know, belief that you had to wait until the child was age three or four. That's not no longer the case. So start early. That's number one, as early as 18 months, even earlier. Number two, and this is the kicker, the research, recent research is suggesting that you need probably at least 10 to 15 hours per week of one-on-one, one adult, one child, engaging intervention that is evidence-based and addresses the comprehensive needs of the children. That's the definition of early intervention. Uh, I'm sorry, of intensive early intervention. So when you get to, well, what are those evidence-based approaches? ABA is definitely one of them. And it used to be the only one, really. I think over the last 10 years, maybe even over the last, since 2014, really, maybe only the last seven years, there's been a major a change, and I, I, I suggest. I mean, probably Susan Hyman talked about it, but there's been a major change in the research evidence for other types of models, and, and one of those models that is the parent-implemented models, so or PII parent-implemented interventions or PIM parent-implemented uh, models, where we're empowering the parents to put in that time throughout the week, and you know. Even a two working parent or single parent family is spending 40 to 50 hours of waking time with their child. And so the argument, there's two big arguments for parent implemented models. One is that you're really taking advantage of all those hours. You're empowering the parents. And a lot of these parent implemented models are more playful. They're developmental. They're natural. And so they're developmental and more relationship-based, which address the social deficits or difficulties in autism. So they're very complementary to speech and language, OT, ABA. And in fact, they work beautifully together, parent-implemented models, which are becoming more, more popular. And the other argument for training the parents is that when a therapist delivers the services, and I've been the medical director of three ABA programs, the, the number of children you can take care of is quite limited. And so there are long wait lists for ABA services. There's long wait lists for, you know, speech and language services. And I believe firmly that if we adopted more parent training models, we'd be able to reach a lot more children. So that's the, that's the other big argument. 
So you were saying there were five things and I want to make sure that I got them so I can capture those. So start as early as possible and then 10 to 15 hours per week of one to one. Can you outline the three, four, and five? Um, then, then it should be engaging. Engaging. Yep. Yeah. So that's, uh, so that's really important. It's, uh, it's start early, you know, put in the time. It should be one-on-one and it should be engaging and there should be evidence that addresses the comprehensive needs. Thank you. Well, and in listening to all of you, it sounds like a child who is surrounded by professionals like you and your colleagues, a child has such an opportunity to grow. And, um, and I think that that is what we're all shooting for, right? And so the elephant in the room as a pediatrician, if I'm not acting on this early, I could be depriving a child of this opportunity to flourish. I mean, would any of you like to comment on on that? Yeah, I definitely agree. And as we know, the child's brain is so malleable to change. The earlier we get in there, we start to work with them, the changes in the brain are going to happen. And so we just need everybody to collaborate and be on board with that this is just really a benefit to everybody. And so that, you know, let's just come together with some kind of consensus of, I love how you said that somebody gave you a call or that you, you know, like to receive calls as pediatrician, because, you know, I'm sometimes as a speech language pathologist, fearful of bothering or, you know, calling a pediatrician. I know they're super busy just as we are as well, but, you know, feeling that they want to hear from us. And so this opens up a whole new conversation. And actually when we spoke before we recorded today, you know, you said that and it's empowered me to feel comfortable now to pick up a phone and to call a pediatrician and say, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. You know, can we collaborate? Can we have some kind of discussion? Because really, you know, as Rick said, you can reliably diagnose autism as early as 18 to 24 months, whereas in the past, children were getting diagnosed, you know, four and five years, and, and that's too late. Yeah, and I think one of the things Dr. Hyman really the, was hoping, the average age is still, uh, I say the average age is still delayed by, if you actually look at the literature, it's about still three to four years of age when most children are being diagnosed. And I think this has what we're talking about is really profound information for pediatricians because once the pediatrician introduces the possibility of that diagnosis, it affects early intervention. It affects speech and language therapists, it, it, you know, who are on the front lines. And the pediatricians, they're very trusted by families. And so it gives permission to everybody to talk about the possibility of autism. Kirsten, I I know what you're hearing is like near and dear to your heart. What else do you think about, you know, what, what other things you want to add to the, to the conversation? So you had mentioned a little bit earlier that pediatricians, you know, delaying the, the process of getting the child diagnosed will deny the child you know, opportunities, but I think it doesn't only deny the children opportunities, it denies parents needed opportunities, you know. So I just want to talk a little bit about what OTs do in early intervention, just to help illustrate that. So we have specialized training in the science of how a child's brain registers and responds to sensation. 
and how this impacts their ability to participate in social relationships and daily occupations. And so not all children who struggle with sensory regulation have autism, but most children with autism, 80 to 90 percent, struggle with sensory regulation. And so usually parents will see this as a child being over-responsive to a sensory input, or they'll be under-responsive. So they can be over-responsive to touch, but they don't respond to people um, speaking their name. And so what OTs do for families and early intervention for parents is that we collect information regarding a child's sensory regulation using standardized assessments such as the sensory profile, and then we review daily routines and relationships, you know, that the child's struggling to engage in. And then here's where the magic begins, and this goes along with the parent-implemented approaches, is that we start to teach parents about their child's unique sensory profile. So the behavioral cues that the child is displaying to indicate, you know, that they're having difficulty with sensory regulation. And not only that, OTs will often then begin a discussion with parents about their own sensory profiles and their own reactions to certain types of sensory input. And this begins to help parents to understand that the child's behavioral responses are not always within their conscious control. They're not always within their conscious control. And then we teach parents to use what they know about their child's sensory profile to help their child develop their ability to stay regulated, to share attention, to engage in social interactions and daily routines. And so, you know, we do this by incorporating more of the child's sensory preferences into routines, maybe slowing the pace of play, um, using less language, sorry, Cheryl, (laughs) Um, providing access to enclosed spaces, or, you know, a straw cup with water, or adapting routines, adding supports, and limiting exposure to, to sensations that a child is sensitive to. So, I just wanted to give an example of a a little guy I saw who was three, who was having a lot of difficulty with his bedtime routine. And his parents reported that they were having difficulty managing his, what they called glitchy behavior. And he was just becoming very overreactive. During bedtime, he would seek out movement and deep pressure, and he was really difficult to redirect. And bedtime was just a very negative experience for them. And he was a little guy that had been diagnosed with autism and attention deficit disorders. So I reviewed the family routine with them beginning at dinner through bedtime. We talked about his sensory profile. This little guy had a low sensory threshold to lights and he always wanted to wear a hooded sweatshirt and he always had his hood up. He was always turning the lights off in the house. He was also a child who had a high threshold for movement and deep pressure And he also sought out oral sensory. He was putting things in his mouth still at age three. So I problem solved with the parents, you know, how can we adapt this routine to add more sensory supports? And so we decided that after work, when mom was cooking, dad would engage the child and play outside or in the sensory room. And I had to spend time, you know, coaching dad how to engage his, his child in play because often parents are at a loss for how to play with the child. You know, parents tend to be very directive in play. What color is this? 
well, what's that? Where's this? You know, and that's not fun for the child. And then suddenly the child's on, you know, just moves away from the parent because it's not fun. So just teaching dad how to be fun with the child, how to let the child lead the play, how to incorporate the child's sensory preferences into the play. And then they would eat dinner. And then after dinner, the parents wanted to relax. They wanted to watch a little bit of news. So I said, fine, you know, and they wanted to give the child the iPad. I said, fine, but let's have him sit with his weighted blanket on the couch. And then after the parents watched the news, we created a fun interaction between the parents and the child around turning off the lights, because that's what he loved to do was turn off the lights. And so as dad interacted with him around his idea of turning off lights, you know, mom would turn on calming music to signal to his sensory system, okay, it's we're getting ready for bed. And he was offered a small snack and a drink. And then I asked them to have him carry his weighted blanket up the stairs for that input. Mom turned on the shower and then first she brushed his teeth. Often kids do not like toothbrushing. So I teach parents little strategies. Well, brush his teeth before the shower that he loves to do. And that'll give him time to calm down. So she brushed his teeth and she counted so he knew it would be over. And then then I said, well, let's give him a glow stick to break. So he broke his little glow stick, which turned on a, a little light. They turned off the bathroom light and he had a sensory shower. (laughs) And so he loved doing that. And then after the shower, mom gave him lots of deep pressure with the towel, helped him put his PJs on in the bathroom. And then as he walked to his bedroom, he could turn off more lights because that was so fun. And then dad engaged him in looking at books. And then he went to sleep with his weighted blanket. So suddenly this routine that was full of lots of behavioral challenges and it was miserable for everybody, suddenly it became pleasurable and predictable and fun. And so, you know, we want to empower the parents with these strategies and tips that they can incorporate um, into routines. And then once they know more about their child's sensory and developmental profile, what I love is then all the ideas that they come up with. This is lovely. I, I want a sensory shower. I want you to redo my <laughs> night times. I mean, it sounds like just this magical. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm just like getting calmer. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, Stephanie, a lot of perhaps what you guys do meshes with what Kirsten's talking about. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I was listening to Kirsten talk going, yeah, those are all the same strategies we probably would have recommended too. And so actually listening to everybody, I'm just struck with how much we all have in common, even though we come from different disciplines and different uh, fields. We all share uh, similar viewpoints in terms of the importance of early intervention, the importance of parent involvement. ABA also has a parent training component, even if children are receiving services in a clinical setting. And many of the strategies that Kirsten just described are similar strategies a behavior analyst might use. And so I think there's room for different professionals to be involved with the family to give a really comprehensive treatment for the issues the family is facing. And I know sometimes that can cause some 
maybe some turf issues or fear of turf issues, maybe that we're going to have because we all are trying to work on different aspects, the child's needs. But I think if we all stay focused on, we share a lot in common and our differences are probably very small actually in how we view things. And uh, so I, I guess I'm using this as an opportunity to encourage families to consider how they can create a network of professionals that work with their family. And similar to what Cheryl was saying earlier, I think as a behavior analyst, sometimes we aren't, we don't feel sure it's okay for us to call the pediatrician or call the speech and language clinician who's working with the family or maybe call the OT. But that's a really important aspect to having a well-organized and comprehensive treatment package for the child is having professionals who can really talk to each other. And our general finding is that the parents have to be the one who helps facilitate that. They're the one at the center of all of this. And so we view part of our role as working with the parent to empower them to do that kind of networking and helping to keep that team communicating with each other effectively. Well, I I think a lot of times the pediatricians think we're supposed to do this or the parents bring the problems. But I'm just thinking, gosh, if, you know, Cheryl was, or, or I'm sorry, Kirsten was in the home and seeing these things and then was talking with the ABA and the ABA could then reinforce that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cheryl's working on her piece and the parents are learning how to play because of some of the programs that Rick's talking about and Kirsten's helping learn how to play. I mean, it just makes for a much better environment for the family and the kids and because this is hard for families. And Rick, you had some other thoughts? Well, I just wanted to add on to, I mean, the beautiful case study, I think demonstrated a very important principle, and that is meeting the child where they're at. And I think uh, what occupational there were occupational therapy is so strong is that so many of our children with autism are sensory in their experience of life. And so we meet them where they're at in that sensory experience. And what that does is it brings them out of themselves and into relationship with people. This is the very, to me, the very first step in helping the children become more connected because uh, this is the fundamental problem. Uh, with autism is the disconnectedness um, to other people, the focus on sameness and repetition. And in order to bring children into our world, a lot of times the first modalities are sensory. It could be deep pressure, it could be roughhousing, it could be, you know, spinning, jumping, water. And so the OT experience is the beginning of that, I would say the beginning of this ability to meet the child with autism where they're at functionally, and as as Kirsten said, in terms of their fun. But then what happens, and this is the beautiful part and very important for pediatricians to hear this, that once you meet the child where they're at and you get them to be engaged and you get them to be more social and you get them to be connected, their little brain cells are making neuronal connections all over the place. And between the ages of 18 months and five years to six years, you are literally changing their, you know, neurology, I believe. I think the evidence is still to be shown because it's very hard to measure this in, in children's brains. But I can't tell you how many times I have seen these children just take off. And the research literature is very clear that you, that you change the developmental and behavioral trajectory 
if you get these children into this, the types of interventions we're talking about early. And so I, it's just these case studies where you see the child go from not talking to talking, from not being social to being social, from doing lots of repetitive behaviors to reducing their need for repetition because now they have more things that they can do in the world is thrilling. It's thrilling. And, and to see um, the children do well over their lifetime, it's just you know, un- indescribable, the, the beauty and the fulfillment of that. Well, and I think that idea of offering hope to families that this can be different. And I think you'll hear in the next segment um, next week with two young men on the spectrum is they want interaction. I think there's kind of a false idea that kids with autism don't need social interaction. And it may be at different levels, but they want to have connections. They want to find their people where they're accepted and not um, shamed or bullied. They want a place to be just like everybody else. And they want relationships. And I think the program on Netflix, uh, Love on the Spectrum, is all about that. And it's lovely. It's challenging. It's not easy. The thing I love about that show so much is the parents and their incredible compassion for their children. I mean, they want what their children want for themselves. And they want love. They want them to be productive. They want them to be independent. And and so I think all of this really has to promote that. And, and, and so thank you to all of you. I just want to finish up. I want to be mindful of your time. If you had a magic wand today and you could change one thing, what would it be? And I'm going to start with you, Cheryl. Um, Definitely better access to services. I think equity in the type of intervention reimbursement would be key (laughs) Uh, so that more parents could afford in different types of intervention, especially parent implemented interventions, which are so lovely for early, early intervention. And just, you know, for us to really see each child for who they are and meeting them where they're at, like Rick said, just so they can get what they deserve, the understanding and respect that each person on the spectrum should have. Thank you. How about you, Kirsten? So there's so many magic wands I would want (laughs) to wave, but the first thing that came to my mind working in early intervention is that I, my hope would be that every family and every child can experience the joy in being in relationship because that's not always the case when I meet them and relationship drives development, relationship drives development. And so when a child can be in a joyful, loving relationship, back and forth engagement with their with their parent, and the parent can get that, see the child respond and enjoy being together and be with them. And what I wanted to say is that not only does the child change, but you see the parents change through early intervention. They become more confident, more empowered. As they, as they see their successes with their child start to really add up. And then as their child's development just blossoms, you know, relationships drive development. And I wish for every family to have that joyful relationship with their child. I want that magic wand. The other thing is it drives joy for pediatricians because there is nothing more delightful than seeing a family and child soar. I mean, it's just so lovely. What about you, Rick? What's your magic wand wish? 
I would add to that when you do what the child loves, the child will love to be with you. So that that's <laughs> uh, that's about the relationship. But my magic wand would would be to reduce wait lists for services. Um, I would love to see a better public policy. I second uh, the magic wands that everybody else waved. Uh, maybe as even more important, but since they didn't, you know, I, I think what Cheryl was getting at was this issue of equity, public policy, less waiting lists to really serve more children. All right, Stephanie, you get to bring us home. Uh, I'm going to feel like a broken record because mine would be the equity piece too, but I'll, I'll take it to a broader scale, I guess, and say on a societal level also, not just in, in terms of services for children and families, but just the support that families of individuals who have developmental disabilities need. I would love to just see those to be available for all families. And by support, I I mean, you know, the financial support that they need. I I see a lot of parents, for example, who like they can't find babysitters uh, for their child with autism because of the challenging behaviors or because of the very specific routines that children need to follow. And so I see a lot of parents who are really tired and they need a break So I would love to see a situation where we had enough support for parents that they could have those breaks and also a a society that is understanding about what parents are facing. I've seen parents in grocery stores and their child's having a meltdown and they're just like looking around, feeling really embarrassed and, you know, trying to be a society that is accepting and doesn't make people feel embarrassed about issues their child may be having at the moment. So if I could wave a magic wand, that's, I guess, in addition to the ones that have already been shared, that's the one I would try to wave. (laughs) Well, and it sounds to me like many of the things that you wish for are attainable. I mean, there are the resources out there. I mean, a lot of what you guys provide is what children need. It's just you know, paying for it, access to it. And, you know, so um, more power to you. And I so appreciate everyone's time and I want to grant you all your wishes. So thank you so much. And I hope you'll tune in next week when we get to hear two young men because it is so heartwarming. So thanks so much to all of you. I really, really appreciate your time. So much good information and such a great conversation. Before we get to the show takeaway notes, I want to repeat the CME instructions so that you can claim credit. This episode is one of a three-part series of podcasts on autism spectrum disorders. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of Michigan State University and the Michigan Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Michigan State University is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Michigan State University designates this Internet Enduring Material activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All planners, reviewers, and faculty presenters have nothing to disclose. The following commercial organization provided non-restricted educational grants to support this CME activity. Cognoa. Participants will be able to claim CME by reading the Activity Instructions for Participants, AIP, and by using the CME link that are both listed in the show notes. 
The target audience is physicians, physician assistants, and nurses in the specialty area of pediatrics. Learning objectives. Objective number one, name at least three different treatment interventions for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. Objective number two, recognize the importance of early referral and intervention for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. And objective number three, assess practice processes for coordination of services for children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. What a great conversation. I am so thankful to these amazing experts and to know that they're out there making the world a better place for all children. So here are my takeaways. Number one, refer early. Number two, refer early. Number three, I'm going to say it again, refer early. This is probably the biggest takeaway of the entire podcast today. Number four, watch for red flags. These might include lack of a shared three-point gaze, where a child looks at an object, looks back to mom, looks at the object again, prefers objects over people, not showing or pointing, not babbling, not turning to name, and ongoing delayed or absent speech. Number five, if you are concerned about autism, help the specialists and let parents know that autism is at least in the differential and on your radar. I think this is a really difficult conversation to have with a parent to say, I see some things that make me wonder about autism and I'd like to refer your child on for some further assessment because we're afraid of saying the word. But I think we do have the expertise to make those statements and really get the kids the help they need. Number six, parents may be in denial, may be shocked, or may actually be relieved because they were worried too. So again, don't be afraid to use the words. Number seven, early on and early intervention is a great first step. These individuals and specialists can assess the child in the home and may see what we don't see in the office. Number eight, there are multiple complementary modalities that include but are not exclusive of OT, speech, physical therapy, ABA, play and parent interaction. And, you know, again, the bottom line is get the child in the door early. Number nine, Kirsten, our occupational therapist, told a really lovely story about how she was able to work with a family to help with bedtime behaviors. She worked with them, you know, using the child's own sensory profile and created what she called a sensory shower that helped put him to sleep. And honestly, I want a sensory shower before I go to bed because it just sounded so lovely and comforting. Number 10, ABA can also work on identified behaviors in a very structured manner in the home. What is helpful is intensive early intervention and goal setting with the family. And some highlighted points include A, again, refer and start services as soon as possible. And sometimes that can be even as young as 14 months. B, you generally need 10 to 15 hours per week of one-to-one adult dedicated time. This can be professional time, or it can be with a parent. C, engaging parents as partners and supporting their needs by setting joint goals for the child is central to all the interventions. This is a family-based, child-based service. D, barriers. We all know that these exist. They would include long wait lists for formal diagnosis, wait lists for ABA, payment for and access to all the services. I think this is our biggest headache and frustration. I know it has been for me. Number 11, here's some strategies. 
reach across the professions and call each other. That's it. Just call. This would include our occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists, ABA specialists, and our DBH partners. They need access to us and we need access to them and figure out what is going to work best in terms of communication. But bottom line, it's important that we do it. Otherwise, parents get lost in the middle. They're trying to advocate for their child and we can really help be the guide through that complicated process of coordinating services. Number 12, help parents find the joy and fun in interactions with their child. The child's brain is rapidly developing in those early years, and we want the connections to happen that promote social engagement and enrich the language landscape. And it's a joy and a relief when this happens. Number 13, here are the magic wand wishes. Our speech pathologist, Dr. Cheryl Rosen, wants equitable access to treatment. Our occupational therapist, Kirsten Brown, says she'd like to help parents find delight and joy in their child. Our ABA specialist, Dr. Stephanie Peterson, says that adequate funding for interventions that are life-altering for all children with autism spectrum disorders is at the top of her list. And Dr. Solomon, our pediatrician and developmental behavioral specialist, has two wishes. One, he wishes for policies that are put into place to help support the child decrease wait times, and increase early identification. And his last wish is for helping a child reach their full potential. And I think we all want that. A huge debt of gratitude to all of these wonderful speakers. And I think if I hear back from any of you or all of you that you are interested in more in-depth interviews, I can bring back these speakers to help us focus a little bit more deeply and, and do that deep dive. So as always, thank you for everything that you do in your offices and your clinics and on the floors where you work, because that's where the magic happens. I appreciate all that you do for children. Please take care of yourselves and tune in next week because I have a really special episode for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.